is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Arch. I'm Charles Feldman. The governor wants to boost some key infrastructure projects around the state. Can they actually get done? We'll go in-depth. What criminal charges are coming next for Donald Trump? We may have a hint. And new research looks into why sad songs are so popular. But that's kind of sad in and of itself. Yeah, it is. Right? If yeah. sad songs, right? sad. You want happy songs to be popular. Right. But it's counterintuitive, according to the research. We'll, huh? we'll find out. We start, though, with California and Governor Newsom's infrastructure plans. Timothy Simon is chairman of the California African-American Chamber of Commerce, was a former commissioner in the California Public Utilities Commission. Timothy, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So in a nutshell, give us the bullet points. What exactly is in the governor's plan? Well, the governor, like certain governors before him, is trying to establish CEQA reform, the California Environmental Quality Act, which is designed to you know, protect the public uh, from environmental damage, but actually has become a litigation tool, which has you know, slowed many critical projects around the state. And the governor, as did Jerry Brown, as did Arnold Schwarzenegger, are trying to find ways to expedite certain projects, particularly those that are coming through the Inflation Reduction Act and the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act to the state. And um, all I can say is good luck. He's in my prayers. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Is there any danger of, uh, if he gets this through, of throwing the baby out with the bathwater in that uh, while it has become a a litigation tool, uh, there are some good things that it does. Will we lose that aspect of uh, protecting the environment? And also, uh, does this put any safety issues at risk? For my reading or reviewing the, the 11 bills at issue, I think it maintains largely a status quo in terms of environmental and safety protection, particularly in critical infrastructure areas. But I believe what it will make more difficult is for a litigant if it's passed to be able to stall projects without having a greater showing of potential environmental harm. Uh, when I was the California Public Utilities Commissioner, I witnessed many much-needed transmission projects, for example, that were bringing renewable energy and the major centers of uh, California stalled by uh, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Sierra Club, the uh, National Resources Defense Council. Hopefully this will be a warning to them that what they do must be established in the public interest and that public interest serving our need for better infrastructure. This country and this state has infrastructure that is aged. If you travel around the world, you see other countries that really go beyond our uh, current level of of efficient infrastructure. So I'm I'm enthusiastic, but I'm cautiously optimistic. Yeah, I was going to ask you, when you said earlier, uh, when you said about the governor's plan, good luck, was that a good luck as in good luck, or was that a good luck as in good luck? That was the latter. (laughs) (laughs) The sarcastic one. (laughs) Yeah, I've been to this rodeo, and I I know— this governor is well-intended, and this is a deep blue state, but even amongst Democrats, there's a lot of conflict when it comes to issues surrounding infrastructure and environment. And you have those who do throw the baby out with the bathwater, but, you know, it's whose ox is being bored. You have the NIMBYs. You have those who are opposed to seeing anything in their view, those that want a, a easement of enjoyment 
without any interference. We can we can go on and on. The impacts of water, or even the tunnels that the governor is trying to establish, will have impacts in certain areas of the state in terms of water availability and water quality. So all these bring about issues that have litigious potential, but hopefully the legislation will be able to de-escalate the way I'm looking at it. All right, Timothy Simon, thank you for joining us as uh, chairman of the California African-American Chamber of Commerce, also a former commissioner, as you mentioned there, in the California Public Utilities Commission. But, it, you know, it is one of those phrases, good luck, that depending yeah. how you say it, it means very different, you know, like good luck or yeah. good luck. Context, <laughs> sound of voice. Yeah, yeah, so that was interesting. Would you move if you got a job offer out of state? New data shows the rate of Americans moving for work fell to a record low of just over one and a half percent in the first quarter of this year. Joe Mole is author of Employalty. No, don't look it up. There's no, it's not an actual word, but yeah. Employalty. Hang on, what? How to ignite commitment and keep top talent in the new age of work. Joe, thanks for being with us. And it's really cool when you can invent a word. <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good to be with you guys. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, because I know people are going to be going, what is that word? I haven't, haven't heard that before. But let's talk about why people are not moving out of state, which is something sure. that Americans certainly were noted for, their mobility, moving to wherever the job that they wanted or needed happened to be. Why are they staying put now? You know, there are a couple of forces at work here. Um, one that has to be acknowledged right out of the gate is the rise in remote work opportunities, right? Not everybody has to leave their home or their community now to change jobs or work for a, country, a company on the other side of the country. But more than that, we're seeing housing market influences here, right? A lot of people are locked into mortgages at much lower rates, but now to move and get a new mortgage, you'd have a higher rate. So there's that consideration. We know too that uh, our lives outside of work have grown more complicated, right? We know that more people than ever before are struggling with childcare issues. So if you've got help from friends and family where you live, you may not want to move. Maybe you're the primary caregiver to an elderly parent. We have more people than ever before doing that. But by and large, I think what's happening here is that people are making choices about their employment that are really influenced by quality of life. They're not beholden anymore to their employer or their job being the, the primary force at work in terms of their decision making and how they want to live their life. And so it's not surprising to see this decline. So uh, what we have here is made maybe uh, uh, the beginnings of a major sea change in, in work in America, at least for some levels of work, uh, where people can set their own destiny, uh, decide what their work-life balance is going to be, and that gives them a bit more power. So my question is this, how quickly will the big corporations crush that? <laughs> right. Well, here's the really interesting news. And we wrote a little bit about this in the book. This has actually been happening for more than a decade. So we remember the Great Recession in 2008, and we get our economic feet under us a little bit in 2009. And in 2010, about 23 million Americans voluntarily quit their jobs. And this does not include retirements or firings. This is people who voluntarily resigned. And when you look at the hiring numbers, what was interesting is that those people actually quit their jobs to take better jobs. And then the next year, two million more people did that. And then the next year, two million more people did that. And this has happened every year consecutively for 13 years. And guys, last year, 50 million Americans 
voluntarily left their where we have seen hiring outpace quitting and we see a huge swath of the workforce that are upgrading and so what we're seeing in organizations that are not struggling to find and keep devoted employees is that they have figured this out they have figured out that there's a massive recalibration taking place around how work fits into people's lives and they're designing work to appeal to that crowd how are they doing that well, you're seeing things like more flexibility. People want opportunities to determine where they work, when they work, the shifts they work, or the times that they start. You're finally seeing, after years of stagnant wages, some wage growth in a variety of industries that are allowing people some more uh, economic comfort than they've had before. You're seeing organizations pay attention to things like belonging and inclusion. They're paying attention to representation. They're paying attention to the kind of leadership training they're giving bosses because we know that leaving a bad boss is one of the biggest reasons people decide to change jobs. So they're paying attention to the employee experience and they're designing accordingly. Uh, very quickly here, kind of a side-related issue to people not wanting to move for work, wanting to pick what kind of work they take. Uh, how much is the push to a four-day work week uh, going to be involved with this movement? As workers gain more power, do you think you'll see uh, more acceptance of a four-day work week idea here in the U.S.? It's actively happening right now. So we're seeing pilots and trials all over the globe, and we're seeing CEO groups now who are telling us that roughly 40% of employers in the U.S. are either actively considering a four-day workweek option now or considering a pilot of one in the year ahead. And it's because many of the studies and the trials and the programs that have been done to great success across the globe have shown that workers can be as productive, if not more productive, if we can just work a little bit smarter. And when you give a little bit of time back to employees, you create a huge competitive advantage for yourself around hiring and retention. So yeah, it's it's happening. All right. Joe Mole is uh, author of Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work. But you know, all this thing about a four-day work week, why not a one-day work week? Wouldn't that be that better? That sounds awesome. Or a, or a half-day. A half-day work, work week. week. Or a one-hour work week. How about week? a no-day work week? That's unemployment. Oh, that's cool. oh right. <laughs> Uh, a little bit later in the show, so let's say you're like in a really good mood, mm -hmm. okay, and you're listening to a sad song, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, for whatever reason, listening to the sad song mm -hmm. is helping you psychologically. Oh, weird. Right. Or, or like, so are you like crazy or, yeah. or like... Is there something wrong with you? Yeah. Well, I always assume there is, but... Well, yeah, no. Yeah, that actually wasn't a rhetorical <laughs> oh, question, <sorry>. but, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> right now, though, the prosecutor in Atlanta investigating former President Trump and the uh, alleged plans he had to try to overturn the 2020 election in Georgia seems to be indicating now that indictments are likely to come as soon as August. Melissa Redmond is a law professor at the University of Georgia, former prosecutor in the Fulton County DA's office. Thank you for joining us. Hi, good afternoon. Thanks for having me. So based on what we see, why is what we're seeing telling us that charges could be coming in August? Um, basically, what we've seen is DA Willis submit a couple of letters, first to law enforcement in the area, in the city of Atlanta and the county of Fulton, um, alerting them that there may be cause to have additional resources on hand around this time, around between July and September. And then more recently, we saw a letter submitted to uh, a an, an follow up submitted to the chief judge asking that 
no trials or hearings be placed during the two week period in August where she's having most of her staff work remotely. And so that gives us an indication that something's gonna be going on around that time. Um, we know that grand jury runs in two month terms from July, August term. Um, so, I mean, it's pretty good indication that something, and she's basically said, you know, we anticipate that whatever decision is made is gonna cause some uproar. Um, and so we wanna be prepared. Well, I, I, I presume, I mean, the implication I, I think is that if the decision is not to indict anybody, you wouldn't need to have uh, an alert to law enforcement personnel. I, I, would, I would imagine that the implication is that there is going to be some kind of legal action in the form of an indictment and that those indicted uh, might spark protests uh, because of who they are. Is that a fair inference? I think that is a fair inference. I think most of us are assuming that it means if you take those statements along with the recommendation um, that the special uh, grand juror for person indicated that they did recommend indictments and it wouldn't be a surprise to anyone. Um, there is a chance that she's thinking, of course, if even if I present a, a case to the grand jury, although, you know, we've heard the term that, you know, a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich, it's not a guarantee that they'll actually return a true bill or because of, you know, things being as politically divisive as they are, even if she decides that, you know, I'm not going to present it to the grand jury, I'm going to call a press conference and explain why that there will be people so upset that they would also protest. But I think the safer bet is giving what we've seen from supporters of the individuals who are subject, who are being investigated, and their reactions and, and the, the type of activity we've seen from them. I think that's why everyone is assuming that it's an indication that she is at least going to present uh, indictment to the grand jury. You know, Melissa, I'm curious when you say, uh, you know, the old the old saying that anyone can indict a ham sandwich. Has anyone actually ever indicted a ham sandwich? Not that I know of. Yeah, and what's wrong with ham sandwiches? Come on, guys. Indict a turkey sandwich for once. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this. This is kind of a political question, so maybe, maybe you know, that's not your purview, but would you be surprised if uh, some on that side of the fence, uh, supporters of Trump, would latch on to this request that, uh, the, uh, that she has made to not schedule any hearings or trials during the two-week period to uh, accuse her of, like, so you're not going to go after any other crimes— during that period, would that be fair to say in the first place? And what about any other business that would happen during those two weeks? Does it get postponed, moved, rescheduled, go somewhere else? What happens? Um, it would get rescheduled or postponed. It's not uncommon, especially in the summer and towards the end of the year, for there be a lull, for there to be a lull in an activity at the courthouse. There's a lot of conferences. You know, the public defenders have training conferences, the prosecutors have training conferences, the judges have training conferences at the beginning of the year. And then towards the end of the year, unless specially requested, there are no jurors, you know, no jurors are subpoenaed um, after a certain point in December. So it's not uncommon for there to be kind of a lull in activity. Um, and a lot of judges schedule things so far in advance that it's not a uncommon request that we not have any trials these, you know, this particular week or these two particular weeks. There's lots of things that you can do. Um, you can have motions, you know, that don't require um, citizens to be in the courthouse, like just like legal motions. Um, so there's plenty that can get done. Yeah. It's not like all business is going to stop. Got it. Um, there's a lot can be done by Zoom, as we've learned. So um, there you go. More Zoom meetings. 
Right. <laughs> All right. Melissa Redmond, thank you so much. A law professor at the University of Georgia, also a former prosecutor in the Fulton County DA's office. You're listening to KNX In-Depth along with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Debt limit talks now on hold after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said it is time to pause negotiations. Yeah, time is running out, though, to avoid potentially disastrous economic problems. But do we even have a debt limit and why do we have one in the first place? Here to explain is Jonathan Bidlack, who's director of the governance program at the R Street Institute. Jonathan, how you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So I remember when I was a kid and I needed money and I'd go to like my mom and she'd give me pretty much whatever she thought I needed. But there was no actual you know, defined limit. It was only when I got older and I had to deal with banks and credit cards that you have to start worrying about, you know, am I going to exceed my credit limit? When our country was much, much younger, we didn't have a debt ceiling, did we? Well, you did. Uh, you know, the debt limit has has been around since 1917. Uh, it dates back to, to World War One. Uh, you know, in a nutshell, Congress basically got tired of having to approve every bond issuance that Treasury uh, wanted to do or needed to do during during the war. And so instead of having to approve everyone individually, they basically said, OK, you have permission to issue debt up until this point. And if you want to go beyond this point, then, uh, you know, then come back to us. But I think to, to your point, I mean, while it may have existed in the past, it's obviously become uh, much more of a political lightning rod in, in recent decades. Right. So political lightning rod. But really, it, it only becomes a problem uh, it only gets held hostage when you have one party in control of the White House and the other party in control of the House. So it doesn't appear to be a problem when both parties are in control. They just do what they want to do because they all agree with each other and they like what they're doing. Uh, what would happen if if we stopped having this debt limit in place? Would that solve the problem of always holding it hostage and always it being a political fight every time it comes up? Or would it make things worse if we didn't have one? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, you know, most countries don't have a debt limit process like this at all. In fact, there's only one other country that I know of, which is which is Denmark. And, you know, their limit isn't even anywhere close. So they don't even they don't even really butt up against it like we do. Um, you know, there are some countries that that do limit their debt. But what most what most countries do, or at least what most smart countries do, is they actually restrict their spending uh, sort of based on their expected tax revenue. So, you know, they basically say, okay, we're not going to spend beyond a certain amount based on how much revenue we expect to come in, rather than what we do, where we basically say, spend whatever you want. uh, And then when the bill comes due, we have this fight over essentially whether or not we're going to pay it. And so, you know, I think it's kind of backwards. I think that there are there are um, lessons to be learned from from what some other countries do. You know, Sweden, Switzerland, and so on have been really effective at at managing their finances this way. Um, a lot of states have been really effective at managing their finances that way. I mean, Colorado and Oregon, for example, both have have similar versions. So, um, you know, I do think the federal the federal government does does this kind of backwards, and and we're in this this really unfortunate situation as a result. You know, you mentioned uh, 1917 as sort of the uh, baseline when we started having debt limits because of World War One. But of course, the country had a hundred plus year history prior to that. So how did we get along then? And I, I, I get it that we were a smaller country, we were more agrarian, we didn't have nearly the financial issues that face the country and the world now. But still, how did we get along for a hundred plus years? 
Yeah, I mean, basically what happened was that whenever there was a need to, to borrow, which is to say Treasury needed to issue bonds, uh, Congress just approved them on an as-needed basis. Um, you know, obviously in the context of war, where you're typically borrowing a lot more, obviously World War One and then later World War II, um, you know, that sort of creates a different dynamic where essentially Congress was then having to spend an increasing amount of their time just on approving these these bond issuances. And so it's kind of interesting because if you think about it, I mean, the whole original purpose of the debt limit was actually to facilitate additional debt. But today we sort of ironically take it as this check on, you know, growing government or increasing spending and increasing debt. And so in many ways, we've, we've kind of, I think, perverted what the, the initial, uh, you know, initial purpose was. We're always talking about raising the debt limit. Uh, has there ever been a time the country's lowered it? Yes, but uh, not not in a very long time. I mean, you know, again, I mean, I think I think the other point to make here is that, you know, the fights over over the debt limit correspond very much with what we're spending at the time. And part of the reason that we're finding ourselves in this situation where we're, you know, constantly bumping up against the debt limit is because we're increasing our our spending in a pretty much an ex exponential way. I mean, in the last, you know, 3 years, for example, we have presidents of both parties, President Trump first, the Republican, and then now President Biden, the Democrat who spent very aggressively in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And so, you know, when you're when you're spending like that, um, you know, unless Congress is going to go and raise the debt limit by really dramatic amounts, you're sort of going to have these these situations come up uh, on a more frequent basis because you have many more expenditures and therefore are are, are borrowing to pay for them. Jonathan Bidlock, thank you so much for joining us, uh, director of the governance program at the R Street Institute. If you're feeling good, maybe you're feeling happy. Would you turn on a sad song? Well, people do. And a new study looks into why they do. Mario Addy Picker is a philosopher at Loyola University Chicago, helped lead this research. Also, Johnny Proby is a musical performer who focuses her music on wellness and healing. Thank you both for joining us. Uh, first, my question to you, uh, Mario, as a philosopher, uh, what is the idea behind listening to a sad song and it not making you sad so much as it makes you feel better? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, so we were interested in 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 understanding this very puzzling aspect of ourselves, right? Which is that we tend to go away from the negative emotions during during life in our everyday, but we seem to be very drawn to them in art and in particular in music. So that was a question that we wanted to ask. Why is it that people enjoy um listening to sad, to sad songs and to sad music in general. And, and it seems that the answer is that not necessarily that it makes you feel sad, but rather that it makes you feel connected, connected to the music and perhaps to the artists or to other people listening, listening to the music. So, so that was the, the, the heart of the project. But Johnny, as a musical performer who, you know, sort of concentrates on using music for wellness and healing, does that hold true uh, in in your mind? Does does sad music become more therapeutic, or do people want more upbeat things to feel better? 
Not necessarily. I do agree with his findings, and I'll tell you why. Music enhances calmness, and if, in, and if the music has a certain vibration to it, maybe it'll put you in an alpha state, which is relaxation, calmness, and alertness. And uh, it could also help with your feel-good emotions. So all of that just translates into making you feel better, not necessarily sad because the music is sad. So uh, music putting you into a calm, relaxed state, but also there's so many other states that music can put you into. uh, And you probably know this as a musical performer and you focus in on the sounds that get a response from people. There's music that makes us feel happy, music that makes us feel things that we can't put words to, uh, a feeling of uh, transcendence, for example, a feeling of, of being one with something bigger than yourself or at least being able to acknowledge that. Is that true? That is very true. And just maybe, for instance, someone might have uh, emotions that they just want to release and not knowing how to deal with that. Listening to sad music may be a way of helping to release those emotions, as well as maybe it putting, putting you a, a place where you remind you of something of a good time or a time being with a family member, a loved one uh, that may have passed on. And that song could bring back memories that could be fun to someone and put them in a better mood. Mary, I'm curious if your study uh, looked at or included the, the idea that if, if sad music, sad songs, make people tend to be more connected, I think is how you put it, is the inverse mm-hmm. true? Uh, are, are sort of happy, upbeat songs, do, do they tend to make people feel less connected? No, no. We find actually that there are particular emotions, and this was really the most interesting part of the study, where we make an analogy between the kinds of emotion that make for a conversation that feels meaningful and the kind of emotion that people find valuable in music. And we find that there is a really high correlation. Now, the emotions include, interestingly for us, things like suffering, sorrow, sadness, but they also include things like love, happiness, admiration. So what's interesting, at least for me as a philosopher, is that philosophers have tended to focus on the negative emotions, thinking that they deserve their own special, unique explanation, whereas what we find is that people listen to sad music for the same kind of reasons that they listen to upbeat music or to loving music, right, or to music that expresses other kinds of positive emotions, and that is because they want to feel connected, because they have uh, this feeling of connection. And again, we don't make a claim about what the connection is really about. It might be with the music, it might be with other people, it might be with another part of yourself. Uh, But I think uh, the studies points to this kind of unified explanation between negative and positive emotion in music. Uh, Mario, did your study, well, it focused in on sad songs and why people feel better when listening to sad songs. Did it also touch on something bigger? Because the idea of music has always kind of blown my mind because I think back to when, you know, uh, humankind was just becoming sentient, looking up into the sky and thinking, that's so much bigger than I am. How do I cope with that? Did humanity have to invent music to help us cope with the things we don't understand about the universe and about ourselves? That, that is a, a great thought. Our, our study was kind of narrow, as you said. We really just focus on the case of, of, of sad music. But, but I think you're totally right, that music gets at something ineffable, as you put it before, something that cannot really put into words, and that there's really not a, a substitute for it, that we really 
needed. It's almost a biological need that we that we have uh, as humans. Now, where did that come from in our evolutionary history? I have no idea. Right, that's beyond my pay grade. But I think you're totally right. I hopefully this study is. It points to something more, more grand and more meaningful. There you go. All right, uh, Mario Adipicker, philosopher at uh, Loyola University in Chicago, helped lead this research in the sad songs. And uh, Johnny Proby, musical performer, focuses her music on wellness and uh, healing. So your your last question was it was very heavy. It was. It, it was very, and heavy. I feel kind of crushed and sad by it. And, and but see, I have a different view. I, yeah. I think we invented music to sell concert tickets and <laughs> records and and mattresses and, and groceries. Ma- yes. Yeah, that's why we invented and. Traffic beds. Jingles. Yeah, That's there why you we go. invented music. All right. Do we uh, want to leave people happy? Yes. Let's leave people feeling very much better about themselves. Yeah. Now, don't you all feel nice and sort of comfy and just sort of upbeat? I feel weird. <laughs> <laughs> That's it for KNX In-Depth. <laughs> we will be back Monday at 1 p.m. <laughs>